0: Hello. We humans have always been fascinated by our primate cousins. Of course, studying these animals also helps us figure out the evolutionary puzzle of what makes us uniquely human. But there's a tendency to focus on male behaviour in this puzzle, bolstering stereotypes of the male aggressor and the passive female. My guest today has worked to counter this bias, studying female primate behaviour to create a richer picture of our evolutionary biology, as well as what it means to be a woman. Sarah blaffer Hurdy is an American anthropologist and primatologist and Professor Emerita at UC Davis in California. Her overarching aim, she says, is to understand the human condition. It's a goal she initially planned to pursue by becoming a novelist. But instead, she found her way into science, making her name as a primatologist studying infanticide among langur monkeys in North India. Throughout her career, she sought to understand reproductive and parenting strategies. We humans are cooperative breeders, she believes, primed by our evolutionary history to need a lot of support raising children. It's a concern she found reflected in her own life as she juggled family with career ambitions. Sarah Hurdie, welcome to The Life Scientific.
1: I'm delighted to be here.
0: Now, I mentioned that your research has helped counter sex bias in, in the study of evolution. Are sex stereotypes, the the aggressive male, the passive female, rooted in biology? They go
1: way back, even before Darwin. But Darwin gave it the seal of scientific approval. He characterized males as the more aggressive, more competitive, and the seekers of mates interested in spreading their seed, and females as much more passive, which in a way is so ironic because... Darwin, this masterful naturalist, was very aware of the many exceptions in nature. He knew that they were animals where males actually did quite a bit of care, and females were competing for males. But somehow, when it came to his own species, he had a blind spot. And another great evolutionist, John Bowlby, the father of attachment theory, he thought mothers would be the only ones who cared for babies and that they just naturally wanted to turn their lives over to their babies. You know, they were these blind spots and they carried over into modern evolutionary biology.
0: And when you're studying female primate behavior, clearly you approach it scientifically, but does being a feminist influence how you think?
1: Well, I was, I was slow to learn. You know, I grew up in South Texas very patriarchal, very racist part of the country. And I don't think I knew anyone who talked about feminism. Uh, I was very late, I think I was in graduate school, when I started to realize, oh, there's all this bias out there.
0: Well, Sarah Hurdy, you spent your childhood, as you mentioned, in a fairly patriarchal society, born in Dallas, Texas, just after the war, into a wealthy oil family. What was it like growing up?
1: Well, I think the best thing that ever happened to me was getting out of Texas. (laughs) I shouldn't say that. I'm a (laughs) fifth-generation (laughs) Texan. I loved horses and nature, but I didn't feel that I really fit in. The word blue stocking when I was growing up was a pejorative, and it was only when I went away to school. In ninth grade, I went to a girls' school. There, it was all right to like books, Mm. And the headmistress seemed to believe in me. I'd never been a good student. And I think I blossomed academically. I didn't even know that I was a scholar. But it just kind of happened, you know.
0: And at the time, you didn't see yourself as a future scientist.
1: No, though I did want to be a writer. I wanted to be a novelist.
0: This ambition continued at first because after leaving school, you went to Wellesley College to study liberal arts, taking a course in creative writing. Presumably, your plan to be a novelist was you know, sort of well on schedule. I went to
1: Wellesley. <laughs> my mother and my grandmother had gone there. My grandmother was the first woman from Texas to go to Wellesley. I was a good girl. Of course, I'd go to Wellesley. <laughs> and I got there and I still don't know how it happened, how I managed to do this and how I knew to do this. But I was writing a a novel about people in Mexico today of Mayan descent. And I thought, gosh, if I'm writing this, I really need to understand more about Maya beliefs and Maya history. And I just upped and applied to Radcliffe, the women's part of Harvard, to study with the great Mayanist, Evan Vogt. We all called him Vogtie.
0: So you transferred to Radcliffe College to major in anthropology.
1: And I had no background in it. But anyway, there I went. And Harvard then was a very kind of male-centered place. Women weren't allowed in the undergraduate library. Goodness. And the year I graduated, there wasn't a single woman professor at Harvard College. But social anthropology was a very welcoming place for women then. And once I got to Radcliffe, I was going down to work on medical projects in Honduras and Guatemala My job was to just open the clinic up and get it ready for the visiting dentists and give vaccinations and things like that. But early in the morning, I'd have people come in, women, local women come in and tell me stories about espantos, demons, spooks and things. And I became really fascinated with, you know, how human imaginations devise these demons. Anyway, my senior honors thesis was published by the University of Texas as a book But I realized, oh, I can't go on in this work. Working down in Guatemala, I'm going to have to become a revolutionist. And, you know, I wasn't temperamentally suited for that stuff. (laughs) And I thought, well, I better go into another field. And so I applied to a communications program at Stanford to learn to make educational films. Got there, and then something just totally unexpected happened. None of this was planned. Mm. I was doing a film on air pollution. And the great biologist, Paul Ehrlich, was giving a lecture about the effects of crowding on the planet and on humans and so forth. And something just clicked in my personal cabinet of curiosities up there. I had had to take a science course. And I'd taken one of the first courses in the country on primate behavior. And I didn't get much out of it. But I did remember that there were these monkeys in India that supposedly because they were crowded, males were killing babies. And I thought, oh, my goodness, why are these males behaving like that? I need to go find out what's going on.
0: I mean, just in this explanation of your early life and your studies, you've jumped, like you start writing a novel about Mayan culture, you become fascinated with the folk tales of of the Mayans there. That ends up being not a novel, but a, a piece of academic work. Then deciding to leave it and go across to the West Coast to Stanford, did you then think, no, my career is not here. My career is going to be rather different. I wasn't
1: thinking in terms of careers. I was just thinking of particular projects, questions I wanted to answer. I had no interest, Jim, in getting a PhD, but that was how I could get to study these monkeys that were in India.
0: Was that of the cultural background that you grew up in, that you were allowed to explore, you know, if you had a curious mind, you could just go and explore (laughs) what you wanted to do?
1: (laughs) I was the the third of five children, uh, four daughters and a son. I was the heiress to spare. They didn't care what I did. Ah, (laughs) The bills just went to my dad's office. And, you know, and you have to wonder how many women who would have contributed so much more than I did to science didn't have that option. But mm. that's another story.
0: So okay, after your short stint across in, in Stanford, you come back to Cambridge, Harvard accepts you onto a graduate program in the anthropology department, and you start this field work in India observing Lango monkeys. I mean it's a grim subject, infanticide. Adult Lango males were killing babies. What were you hoping to find out?
1: Okay, so my starting assumption was that this must be pathological behavior produced by crowding, high population densities. So I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to be measuring. So I had all these techniques for measuring population densities of different monkeys. And before I got to India the first time, this scientist in Jodhpur in Rajasthan had seen infanticide in the langurs there. So I went first to Jodhpur, and I talked to S.M. Monat. S.M. introduced me to langurs. And I went out in the desert and saw them for the very first time. And he suggested I go to Mount Abu. And it was ideal because the monkeys there were spread along a continuum between low densities in the forest and much higher densities in town. My starting assumption was as animals got crowded, males would just lash out and they were attacking the most vulnerable thing in their vicinity, and that was infants. Well, even my first field season, it was clear to me that the monkeys in town living at high densities, males were very tolerant of babies. Babies would jump on them like a trampoline and, you know, and (laughs) tearing around. The only time things got tense, um, langers live in these breeding troops, both males and females, and males who aren't in the breeding groups are in these all-male bands circling around trying to find a way to come in. And it was only when males were entering the breeding system from outside it that they were targeting infants, and there was nothing pathological about it. Their behavior was as goal-directed as a shark's.
0: So so the monkeys weren't killing infants because there was overcrowding or because they were feeling disturbed. It was actually a natural behavior. How was that research received? That
1: was when the work got controversial, because I couldn't understand, really, what I was seeing. And Bob Trivers was teaching at Harvard then, and he introduced me to sexual selection theory, which, of course, it all just immediately made sense. I mean, Darwin said sexual selection is when you have competition between one sex for access to the other sex with the result for the loser. is not necessarily death, but fewer offspring. And so my report on it was male-male competition and infanticide among the langurs of Abu. And In that, I proposed that it might be an adaptive behavior. I was presenting this material, and one of the grand old men in biological and physical anthropology, we called it then, when I finished my lecture, went up to the front, turned to address the audience, his back to me, and said, you know, I've sent students to Mount Abu, and the monkeys there are not normal monkeys. And then he just marched out. Before I could even dismissing your your results, I I should have been devastated. You know, I was one year past my PhD, and you know, not very confident at all. I was just recapping my evidence, you know, and it was fine. (laughs) (laughs) But it's taken years, and in anthropology, it took a long time to die down.
0: Could you explain why your results on the Lango monkeys was so controversial? Uh,
1: Well, social anthropology at that time was very influenced by this idea that every animal in the group has a function, a role to play in the perpetuation of the group to keep it running smoothly. But even by this time, little tidbits of anecdotes were trickling in from other species, you know, and so that's when I did this big overview, Infanticide Among Animals, And the implications for the reproductive strategies of females, because this is where being a woman came in. I went to study the males, but while I was there, I couldn't help but, you know, kind of identifying with these females. Every 27 months on average, some male was coming in and killing their baby. You know, it Mm was...
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, it was the males that got all the attention, (laughs) (laughs) as always, your work had inspired you to focus now on the female side of evolution. In your book, The Woman That Never Evolved, fascinating title, of course. (laughs) I was (laughs)
1: playing for the creationist audience, no.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What were you arguing then in that book?
1: Well, I was arguing that in the spheres that really matter to them, females are as competitive as males are. There's nothing unnatural about female ambition, and that selection was operating on females just as heavily as males. Back then, the assumption was really that somehow Darwinian selection worked harder on males than on females because they had more variation in their reproductive success, that they could mate with many females. The male produces abundant semen, and females produce these costly eggs and then undergo pregnancy and give birth in the case of apes one at a time. Well, that led to the impression that somehow females couldn't differ from other females, that, you know, the the female primates are giving birth year after year and raise their babies till they die. Of course, now we know that in species like marmosets, where females will suppress ovulation in their competitors or kill their babies when they have them, this kind of advantage can be passed on. There are just so many exceptions.
0: So, I mean, you really were tackling this myth of the the passive coy female. (laughs) That was
1: uh, Ruth Blyer at the University of Wisconsin was doing this program on feminist perspectives on science. And I wrote an essay, uh, Empathy, Polyandry, and the Myth of the Coy Female, about how females were much more polyandrous than their reputation, though I didn't necessarily see this as promiscuity in the sense that most people throw that term around pejoratively, to me was a way for mothers to keep babies alive. And I think in Langer's, the main reason is to manipulate information about paternity, because males do not attack infants being carried by females that they have mated with. The other reasons, of course, females might be angling for better genes. There could be resource competition, competition for the babysitters. I mean, that's what's going on in the marmosets. The dominant female, if a subordinate gets pregnant, even if it's her own daughter, will kill that infant. I mean, this is the grandmother from
0: hell. So that her daughter can can continue to look after her
1: next offspring.
0: Well, it was during your time researching primates in the 70s, you first met your husband, Dan, Dan Herdy. You'd met him at Harvard, tell me, was it Love at First Sight?
1: Oh, well, all right. Uh, (laughs) This was in William Howells' course on Fossil Man. Dan was in that course. And um, it was Love at First Sight. And I say in retrospect, he was the only one with any flesh on him. You know, this course on Fossil Man.
0: (laughs) I gather also it was a bit of a Romeo and Juliet story. Thankfully, not the ending, of course. But your family didn't approve of Dan. My
1: father's family Right. Uh, was creating problems but my mother and my grandmother were both very supportive but anyway it was uh, a very difficult time and we ended up just eloping. Dan was on his way to the Solomon Islands working on the Harvard Solomon Islands project and I was on my way back to Abu and we met in Kathmandu and we married.
0: Well your first daughter Katrinka was born in 1977 and the other, she came along with you on field trips.
1: Yeah it was kind of a um, a race whether Katrinka would be born first, or the Langers of Abu, female and male strategies of reproduction. And um, <laughs> the book came out first, and then Katrinka right afterwards. And she came with us when we went back to India twice.
0: So what was it like having a young child with you on field trips?
1: <laughs> oh, uh, the first time I brought an au pair with us to help me, what I didn't, have the sense to do was to find out how interested she was in childcare. <laughs> Katrinka was not a happy camper. She had diarrhea a lot of the time. It was very, very difficult. And Dan says now he wouldn't have taken a baby her age where we took her at that time if he'd known what he did today. Though it gave me confidence because he was he was a PhD in anthropology, but he was also an infectious disease doctor in training. And that gave me some confidence.
0: Well, having spent 10 years studying monkeys in, in India, 1980, your time there came to an end for various political and bureaucratic reasons. It was awful, reasons. a nightmare time, yeah. <laughs> but was it also just because it's hard to do field work with young children in tow?
1: By then I had two children and I knew how disruptive it was for children if their parents have to go away. And I, parents do it. And sometimes it ends very well, but it was hard. And also, this was Dan's turn. Dan had been so supportive through my whole career. So the next time it was his turn.
0: Well, after India, you moved to Houston and then back to Harvard.
1: We went back to Harvard because Dan was still finishing his PhD on rotaviruses.
0: I think it's fair to say, Sarah, that as well as this sex stereotyping that you encountered in evolutionary biology that you were seeking to change, you also faced sexism in your career. You you discovered much later you'd been passed over for a (laughs) position because you were a married woman.
1: I was an unsalaried postdoc. I was basically supported by my family. And um, at Penn State, Napoleon Shagnaw and William Irons called up my advisor, which is how it was done then, Mm -hmm. you know man-to-man, and um, said, hey, uh, you have a graduate student, Sarah Hurdy. Do you think she might like a job? And he said, oh, she's married. And he suggested another of his graduate students, Jeff Kurland, who at that time, well, actually was also married, (laughs) but he was male. And anyway, so I didn't get that job, and I was unemployed for a number of years working as a volunteer at my kid's daycare center, which, of course, was actually very productive. It's a convoluted history and not lockstep. There there was an interesting book a few years ago called The Leaders in Animal Behavior, The Second Generation. The first volume had been all men, but this one was women. And if you read the women's biographies, they're all so idiosyncratic as we're each trying to make a life for ourselves on our own terms. The men are so lockstep, graduate school, postdoc, tenure job, that's how it goes, it wasn't that way for women then. And my marriage was so important to me. And later, my children were so important to me. How, how do you combine all that? And I still think it's not completely mm. worked out. It's much better, but it's still hard.
0: And of course, you know, we know in academia, there's the so called two body problem when both husband and wife are looking for academic positions. In your case, you both then got positions at University of California, Davis, uh, on the West Coast. So you were appointed Professor of Anthropology. This is 1984. But you turn your attention to a very different kind of work, looking through dusty probate records to study patterns of inheritance. How did you find this new way of life after spending 10 years doing fieldwork?
1: Well, you know, probate records are public documents and we were working in these dusty courthouses. I was working together with Deborah Judge, my graduate student, and we were both women who'd been primatologists who now had families. And it was it was not what either of us wanted to do, but it meant we could pick up our kids at school. We didn't have to go far away.
0: Well, your research over the next decade was looking at the natural history of motherhood. You published an award-winning book, Mother Nature, A History of Mothers, Infants, and Natural Selection. You argue in it that motherhood is much more ambivalent for humans than for our closest primate relatives. What does this mean?
1: Yes. Well, I had already realised that an ape with the life history characteristics of humans, these very costly babies taking so long to mature, so long before they would be nutritionally self-sufficient, that unless mothers had had allo-maternal help, that is, help from group members other than the mother, there was no way that our species could have done anything other than go extinct. Um, they just couldn't have bred fast enough. You produce one baby at a time, conditions were bad, and they were needing a different kind of diet and so you needed others helping you. And so I I realized that, oh, we didn't evolve to do this by ourselves. A mother chimpanzee is incredibly possessive. She is not going to let that baby out of skin to skin contact with her for the first six months nursing on demand. And this was the kind of template that John Bowlby had for attachment theory, baboons, macaques, chimpanzees. But Looking through the ethnographic data, it was very clear to me that in hunter-gatherers, mothers are much more tolerant of letting others take their babies, even grateful. And this became very personal because when I first gave birth, I brought Katrinka home from the hospital, committed to attachment theory. Babies Mm -hmm. need to be securely attached to their mother. And of course, back then, I thought we were like chimps and that It's just the mother. And it didn't take me long before I began to feel ambivalent about being on call 24-7, night and day. You know, I'd published two books. I wanted to go on working. And um, that's when I realized I needed more help. And I realized, well, guess what? I'm not abnormal. I don't belong on Freud's couch. Women have always needed a lot of help with their children. And I became a big advocate for daycare I felt we needed to pay more attention to how we make daycare better and more available.
0: Well, you went on to propose that the need for shared care is really critical for understanding the human condition.
1: They needed this in order to survive. But the interesting, interesting part of it are the implications for everyone involved, especially implications for infants, because infants are born in this group. They depend on care But they have to, certainly by the time they're about six months old, they need to attract attention from others as well. So babies are paying attention. They're monitoring others. They're competing for the allo mothers. And this led to, I think, the expression of traits that otherwise would remain latent. Because human toddlers and other apes have very similar cognitive abilities in terms of spatial ability, object permanence causality, what happens when you knock something over, where you really start to see the differences are in social cognition. Humans are much better at imitating someone else, at communicating, and theory of mind. It's not that other apes don't have some capacity to know that someone knows something different from them. It's just that little humans are so much more interested in it, and they they get better at it and more interested over time. Why is that? Why do they need all these socio-cognitive talents? Well, it's to attract alum mothers, to ingratiate themselves with them and appeal to them. And it just sets us up. It doesn't make us more cooperative. It sets the stage for these things to evolve.
0: Well, Sarah, throughout your career, writing has played a big part. You've written a number of successful, award-winning academic books. Your next one on fatherhood, I believe, is out next year. Any ambitions, though, to finish that novel you started to write as a young woman?
1: My son keeps telling me I should, but that's because he's not interested in reading my academic
0: books.
1: (laughs) 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 It's very hard to go back to that place. I definitely will be writing in a more personal vein. I think I might like to write something about marriage because it's been so important to me. And people reading my work might think that I'm You know, I I remain so agnostic about how polyandrous and polygynous our ancestors were. Before colonialism, before missionaries, before Western influences took over, there were a lot more matrilineal societies out there. And where children fare better is in societies where maternal interests are given more weight. And that's something we should all care about.
0: Well, as Influential anthropologist, feminist, mother, wife, Sarah Blaffer Thank you very much indeed for sharing a fascinating life scientific.
1: It was fun. Thanks, Jim.